Hi, welcome to Steve McGrath's Bassraft. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by the one and only Mr. Keith Duffy. Keith is well known on the Irish scene and is best known internationally as the man holding down the bass seat in the cars for the last 25 years. He's done some absolutely massive tours with the cars, as well as supporting acts such as the Rolling Stones and Celine Dion. He also tours and records Ronan Keating, as well as doing a bunch of session work. So me and Keith sat down and we talked about his philosophy when it comes to bass playing and his early years trying to transcribe Weather Report's Heavy Weather as one of his first records. Yeah, jumped in at the deep end there. Keith is also endorsed by Lakeland Basses and EPS, and we talked about how this came about and why he still loves the P-Bass. All right, let's jump in. Yeah, 25 years. 95, um, my, myself and the guitar player, Anto Drennan, joined. Brilliant. And how, how does, I guess, how does something like that come about? Like, Because they're like, obviously the, the family are the band. Like, So how does some lad from, are you, are you from Dublin or Drada? I'm from Dublin. I was Dub- born in Drada, but I am from Dublin, yeah. So, so I the, mean, I've lived most of my life here. Okay, so how does a lad from Drada end up in the cars? That's what people are probably thinking. Okay, well, uh, getting a call from the manager basically that was that was how it happened for me. And um, I was uh, I had worked with Andrew Strong from in the early nineties, and the manager had a, a relationship with Andrew from uh, through the movie The Commitments. Um, so he was the uh, music coordinator on the film The Commitments, and obviously Andrea and Jim and Sharon were in, were all in the movie at some at some point. You know, they were all in the movie uh, in big parts. Uh, obviously, Andrea had a bigger part. It was kind and, of one of those um, films, wasn't it? Nearly everyone in the music scene in Ireland got in there at some point. <laughs> I, I actually did. I actually did an audition for everybody. The word was put out to all the musicians that were, you know, young uh, of a certain age, I suppose, in their 20s. And um, I got a call to go in and do an audition for it. I didn't go to Alan Parker. I didn't get to that stage. I just went into the Hubbard's casting. And they just asked you a bunch of questions and, you know, see if you're going to move on to the next one, next level. I didn't move on no, to the next level. Didn't get level. past the first interview. <laughs> No, I didn't. But it's funny that that movie has had such a, an effect on my life. It's changed the course of my life, no doubt, and a lot of other people's as well that were involved with it, you know, because the time it came around, probably not 90 or 89, when they were looking for people. But the movie came out in 1990, I think. And I started touring with Andrew Strong straight after the movie came out because... Um, uh, Paul, it was most of the people that played on the soundtrack were in his band, except for Paul Bushnell, because Paul had moved over to LA or he Sunny was LA, yeah. yeah, so I was kind of lucky that uh, I got I got a call even for the for Anders gig, and then through that, John Hughes uh, remembered me, I think, and called me to do the chorus uh, gig. It was a it was a it was an unusual call because uh, it came in. I'll never forget. I didn't have a mobile at the time. It came into the house at about, I think, about four or five o'clock in the evening. And I was gigging that night. Uh, it was just a regular little pub gig. And he said, I'm in the factory the rehearsal studio with a band. And uh, I, I'd like to, uh, you know, I'd like you to come in and see what it sounds like with a bass. We, we, you know, we didn't have a bass. They were in there for four or five days rehearsing. And they were going to do it just as a four-piece with tracks. Uh, they had a DA88 machine that they were using. So um, I said I couldn't come in because uh, I was uh, I was doing the gig. And he goes, uh, "Okay, um, if I don't get anybody, I'll call you uh, tomorrow." And I said, "Okay." I didn't even think anything about you just, it. Just you never know. Like if you blew off the gig you were doing, that could have been that could have that <laughs> person could have become famous or done really well. I know. Well, I know now. I mean, it's 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 mad to think that that. You know, that that's the way it happened where he called me the next morning at about 10 o'clock and he just said, look, we're back in the factory again today. Uh, they're coming in, the girls and Jim are coming in at one. And he said, can you get in there for 12? So I said, yeah, no problem. So I just uh, piled into the factory, uh, set my gear up. And uh, John was there early before everybody else. And he gave me a CD of the band. And he just said, um, have a listen to that. I said, okay, what track or what tracks? He goes, I don't know. He said, just <laughs> have a listen to it, you know. So in in that space of two, whatever it was, 30 minutes after I got my gear set up, I was kind of listening to the track. And um, I was listening to the tracks. And I just kind of glanced. Obviously, you just follow, plow through them. You, know, you couldn't really you know, get a gist of them all. 
And then they all sort of filed in one, one at a time and uh, we started playing. So it was, it was straight into it. And yeah, we just, we, we, we started playing the different tunes, had to listen to whatever we were going to work on and then went into it. You know, was it so, just, did you kind of jam it out and just see what happened or was it almost yeah. like a rehearsal straight away it's like let's well, do the was, songs the, yeah the girls were in there uh, girls and Jim and Anto uh, he, had, he had gone in the day before me because the same, same call went out to Anto on the Thursday I think so he, he had already gone in that evening and he had a bit of a heads up on it I think so we were just working like we'd work on tracks listen to it a few times and then play the tracks and then if there was anything to correct I remember a lot of the times I would, you know, there was a few parts in it where the bass was playing different routes to the chord and I was just going with the chord because that's, I was just sort of busking it, right? Yeah. You know, and uh, Jim would tell me about it and we'd move on, we'd, we'd go back at it again and then do it the proper way. You know? But uh, we, we did that for the whole day. We took a break, I think about three or four for a sandwich or something like that. And then we went back and we were, we must have hit about eight, seven or eight songs off the record. And uh, I was getting frazzled at this stage, about eight o'clock in the evening or so, half seven or eight. And um, we were just about to pile into another tune. And I said, just give us a few minutes, you know. So I went over to John, who was sitting on a bench at the, at the door. And I said, can I have a word with you just for a second, you know. So we went out the door and I said, I'm fried. What are we doing? Am I auditioning or am I, you know, rehearsing? What am I doing? And he sort of laughed. He said he had a chat during the break. And he was just wondering, uh, he, we talked to the girls in gym and they said, would you be up for going on tour? So well, You were confident enough to do way. that though, like, because most lads would have been like, oh, I'll just play away here and I won't say anything. <laughs> and then I'll give out when I get home. I'll do the Irish. You know, it's like in Ireland when you get food in a restaurant, you're saying, Jesus, this is shit food. And you I don't guess. actually say it until you're gone home. Like. I know. It was just, I think it was just the overload of information that I was getting at the time. I, like, you know, when you take on so many things, it's like recording when you're in the studio and you record a bunch of tracks during the day. Uh, you kind of use a certain part of your brain to deal with that one track at mm. the t- at the time. The, ba- the bandwidth, as I call it, gets used up. Is that yeah? That's it. <laughs> and it's just like okay, and you put a hell of a lot of concentration into being able to get a take down and get it done, and then you move on. And sometimes you can't even remember what you did the, the first track you did. And I was kind of getting like that, and yeah. just a little bit punchy with it all. So I figured. You know, they. I think they were rehearsing in there from uh, like uh, one till ten every night, but uh, during the week that they were doing. You know, so um, yeah, I figured I just have to say something because I'm going to just be clamming all over the place on this ninth <laughs> song or whatever. It was. Play, it was like. Just like the mist, you know. But uh, everything was grand, and and uh, well, after that, we were the next thing I know, we were getting molds done for in-ear monitors because we were going out to support Celine Dion around Europe, Brilliant. and. Uh, that was there was a connection there with the record company, David Foster. I think it might have been David Foster or Atlantic Records or whatever it was. They we we got on a bunch of good support tours right after that, you know. Celine was first, that was a month. Um, and then Michael Bolton was it was big at the time. We we did a whole American tour with him, which was was just great crack. That's all, you know, great did you, fun. Did you get asked to join the band or was it just like do this tour and then you were waiting for the phone to ring. No, they were like, say you're our bass player now and you will be for the time being. Well, I don't think, I I don't think anybody ever says something like that just in case something goes wrong. (laughs) That's true. You know, it wasn't like uh, Robert Trujillo or whatever, when he joined Metallica. It was like, like they bring him into the room and Lars like, Hey man, would you like (laughs) a million dollars? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at this at that point, uh, the band were were just were not really known. I like I didn't know uh, the band uh, before uh, I went in. Like even after I went in, I just I saw the album and that that hadn't been released. I don't think yet. I, I maybe Runaway was out as a lead single. I'm not quite sure. They had done a few TVs, but I wasn't. I certainly wasn't aware of them because. Uh, only about a month previous to getting the call for that, I was away in the States for about two months touring with the commitments. So yeah. uh, even if it was happening in Ireland, I don't think I was connected to it at that stage, you know. That's class. And um, was the commitments was probably your first big gig. And do you remember what got you hooked on the bass to begin with? Like the, the big, the bass beginnings, I suppose you'd call it. Starting out on yeah, the bass. Yeah, the whole lot. Uh, like, yeah. Very start. 
Well, very sad. I was uh, I played sax when I was a kid. Seven when I was seven, I got my brother's learner sax, which was an alto. He had moved on. He's seven years older than me, and he had moved on to tenor. And uh, I just got his, you know, his first alto. And my dad played trombone, so we we were, you know, we were encouraged to play brass instruments. So I, I started out on that, and I played it to a point from when I was about, I think. Oh, from seven till I was about 14 or 15. Um, and then I started going to my brother's gigs when he, he joined uh, the Miami show band in, in 78, 79. And I used to go to his gigs and I started getting drawn to the bass, uh, just to sound sonically and just even the look of it. I think yeah. it was, you know, a cool bass player, the Rickenbacker as well. Looked pretty the Rick, cool, the Rickies know? are cool. I'm not sure about They're the, the, the sound though. Bass. Is the bass no. marmite yeah, I've, you know, I've had about three or four Rickenbackers over the years that I really wanted to love. And, and uh, for some reason, I never kept them. Uh, yeah. But I just love, I love the look of them. I think they're such a cool looking. Yeah, a friend of mine know. took a punt on one of the ones from AliExpress or Wish.com. And it's like a copy oh. of, of Lemmy's one with the carving and everything in it. Oh, really? It's, well, not, it's not as bad as you think. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. pretty bad. <laughs> it's funny, though, the Rickenbacker, the way they're made. Even like the pickup routing and stuff like that, it's like uh, you know, it, it's like opening a bonnet of a car or something like that. You know, they're 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 not the most finessed sort of uh, really? uh, parts on them and stuff. You it's know, like someone no, was using really. a blunt chisel or something to me. <laughs> kind of, yeah, kind of. <laughs> and even when you're playing with your finger, it's hard to find somewhere to anchor your 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 thumb. I, I've actually cut my finger off the little. Uh, there's a little. And um, there's a cover that goes over. I think that was off it, but whatever the receiver was, it's a sort of, it's probably plastic, but it looks like um, chrome around it. But I actually cut my finger off and trying oh, to just anchor somewhere, you know? <laughs> so God, so yeah, that so, wasn't your first base anyway, thank God. No, my first base was a precision, which I was luckily enough, um, in my dad, uh, my dad on the recommendation of uh, his bandmate, the bass player in the band he was playing with at the time, got me a precision bass because I pestered him. Um, it was 80, 83, I think. Uh, and, you know, I was 16, 17, and I was just mad into uh, getting a bass. And I played a few friends' bass, a few friends' basses, and they showed me a few things on them. And, uh, I, I, you know, I could have done with anything, like a Honda or whatever the hell it was. But yeah, um, burned my dad, they're, they're bad. Uh, I mean, they're awful. They were tech. They were terrible guitars, yeah, but lots of people seem to have them or like it, they were kind of a, an entry level thing. It's not like now with the sire basses or with you know, most basses are really well made now, even yeah. the really cheap models that so you can get a good sound out of them. Back then, um, I think it was you know, there was a couple of model, a uh, couple of makes, uh, Japanese makes and things like that, that just they weren't really. They weren't really well made, you know. Mm. But you'd knock it, you'd knock it, a, a tune out on them. Yeah, you'd learn on it anyway. You, know? you wouldn't be you'd keeping learn it. On it. But I think my dad wanted to give me the best possible chance uh, at sticking with something. So he brought me to a music shop one day, and there was two bases uh, in the shop. I think it was Pat Nolan's out in out in the north side of Dublin, and um, there was a Fender Precision, a Sunburst Precision, nice. and there was a Squire. Uh, Esquire Jazz and the Squire Jazz was brand new. It was a JV, which you know now they're raving about that. Back then mm. it was brand new. It was three hundred quid, and the, the Precision second hand. It was a, a second hand was three hundred quid too. So the choice was there, and he kind mm. of veered me towards the Precision because that's what the guy said uh, in the band. He just said, "Get a Fender," you yeah. know. And the guy in the shop was actually trying to get me to buy the, the Squire because he said it's a better base. In fairness, hindsight is twenty twenty. Back then, no one yeah. would have said, buy the Squire, it'll be better than a real Fender like you. It, it was. At the time, they were talking about, the obviously through the 70s and into the late 70s, Fender's uh, quality control was, was, was diving or dipping a bit. And when the Squires were made, I think it really put it to Fender because of the quality. They, they, you know, they used better, I don't know, they just put them. They were using together, the same man. parts, but they kind of just said to the lads in the, the Japanese Japanese factory, they were like, "Yeah, this is a this is a, f a Fender guitar. Can you make something as good, similar?" And then they just blew it out of the park, and That's the right. Fender in America yeah, yeah. were like, "This is bad." I know because even when you see uh, Squires now, some of the JVs, I see them around, and uh, they're very sought after now, and they're going for up, up to upwards to a grand now. A lot of those uh, bases, but. 
even uh, like on the jazz bass, if I had a I had a '77 jazz bass that I used uh, for a long while, it was um, uh, the cream color, you know, white that went all cream. But if you if you look around the routing for the pickup, it was like it was a huge sort of a gap or, or a gap around it, and it was because I heard that they. They left the, the CNC machines or something. They got blunt. They, so when they were make, routing these things out, they were just a little That's bit. They weren't tight. Terrible. You know? Yeah. As they leave a goal like that. It's probably uh, time, you know, our, our money constraints. You know, they were trying to make as many things and keep it as cheap as possible, you know. So your dad got but, you the P-Base anyway, and he was like, this yes. is it. He said, this is it. And I... I, I I just dove into that. I, like I was in the bedroom all day. I'd only come down for for dinner or <laughs> breakfast, and I'd even bring the bass down with me sometimes. I think they thought I was crackers because <laughs> I was. I, I, what I got with the bass was, I think they threw in a curly cable. You know, one of the little yeah, none of Jimmy the Hendrix That's it, and no case. Uh, they they didn't even have a, a, a cardboard box that the bass came in. They had a, a cardboard box that fitted the guitar. So the guy goes, there you go. The headstock was out of it. So you put a shopping bag over the thing, you know. <laughs> so that's what I had for the for the first uh, the first six months of playing. I was playing. I was well. I was uh, practicing all those six months. And a, a friend of my brother's um, at the time. Yeah, told me about weather report and and Jacob Astorius, and he he just said you oh, got it, yeah. you know. You, you got a typical go album there. for a guy who has his days for the first six months would be learning. <laughs> That's it. I had it, yeah. And he goes, oh, I haven't listened to Jacko. Check Jacko. So I went out uh, with my pocket money and I bought Heavy Weather. That was my first actual album that I ever bought, and I used my sister's uh, three in one stereo in her room to to listen to it. Oh my God, I was just blown away. And then, you know, I didn't even know some of the pinch harmonic things were even bass at the time, but that was something that I kept on playing and I was just drawn into it. And I, and I suppose coming from listening to my brother's uh, uh, taste in music over the previous years, I'd heard Steely Dan and I'd heard David Sanborn and a lot of, you know, a lot of that almost fusion stuff that was happening at the time um, uh, through him. So I was listening more to that than than we'd say Bowie or or the Stones or anything else, you know. Brilliant. And uh, I, I listen to your bass playing. You're you're like you you move around the bass, but you are you fill the role of a you know what was some. I move say? around trying to find what. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I, I wouldn't say that, but I, I don't want to say you're busy. Like you're not in the yeah. fu- when you're in the cars. You're definitely not in that fusion style. But oh you, no, no. You do move around, like maybe for timbre or whatever reason, but. How do yeah. you, how would you advise someone to develop that style? Because listen to Weather Report wouldn't really develop that style of bass no. playing that you're you're known it's, for at it, the moment. Well, it's funny. I I, I think you'd, uh, over the years uh, from playing with different people and talking to people, and even actually working with different producers, I've been very lucky, really lucky to work with some of the you know really top producers around like, around, like uh, Mitchell Froom. He taught me a lot about bass playing. His favorite instrument is the bass. And if you listen to a lot of the stuff that he uh, produces, he gives the bass a bit of scope or, or he directs it at least. With, yeah. with me, he, he, was, uh, he let me do things, but he also said, you know, try a little thing up the neck or something. And it was almost like a formula that there would then happen where I'd go, okay, the intro, I'm, I'm going to come in high. And then, you know, and then... If you're uh, uh, if you're learning things like that or listening to bands that he might have produced like Crowded House or um, Ron Sexsmith is another one. There's amazing bass playing on those albums, and it's not necessarily the economy of movement that you hear when people are talking about uh, the learned way about going about. You know, where I probably started off and I, I go, oh yeah, you can go a scale down this way, or you can get to a note here where yeah. the octave is. If you hear some of those records, a lot of the stuff is played in a position but to get to the note that's maybe the fifth here or or whatever or the seventh they you'll do a slide to get to it and, and it seems like an uneconomical way of getting to it but it actually adds to the whole uh the whole uh, flavor of the baseline i think so in, in some ways i was listening to that sort of thing not that i do a, a hell of a lot of it because I, I i i like the style but i wouldn't say i'm brilliant at it you know there's a lot of guys that i i hear and they just sound like they're freewheeling <laughs> you know, I'm I'm very root oriented, so I'm always kind of 
laying down a route and it's more like a soul thing almost if you're if you're if you've come from listening to the guys i listen to like david hood and those guys in the in the soul world duck Dunn and, and uh, you know lots, yeah, lots of those players they i would, love duck Dunn's be, playing really oh, amazing amazing bit, uh, walking lines for the blues style but, and absolutely that blues and and bob glaub is one of the best blues players i mean when you listen to what 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 he plays it's just so definite and and you know perfect the perfect line so i try and emulate uh, to the best of my ability some of those guys in in some ways but then like i said i i, I also try and move away from it just to create a bit of, of uh, flavor in it, you know that's class yeah well i i've listened to getting into jamerson more in the last few years and oh, the yeah. stuff he does is cr- like when you start analyzing these bass lines they're, they're just crazy like he throws in notes that if you were a music theory person you wouldn't put them in like I know, like, yeah, I know, uh, like, E-flats e and over E's, or, like, they're, they're like semitones uh, when he's moving chromatically, and thing. it's amazing. Like, his, his, there's a, what is it, a home cooking, you know that track, home cooking? No, I don't know. It's one of my fa- you know, it's not one of the, the ones that people talk about that much when they talk about Jameson, because it's always for once in my life where I was made to love her, or, you know, those type of uh, bass lines. But home cooking, uh, it's just killer. It's, it's unbelievable. Cool. Yeah. And you, you've been, when I was watching you play online, you're using the five string a lot and it, it sounds class at those big stadium gigs. It's just that big low B strings. Was that something the guys in the band asked you to do or you decided yourself, I need that low B? Well, I think it was probably, um, I'd been playing a little bit of five string before the chorus, not that much. I always, always veer towards the four, but when uh, a lot of the tracks that the chorus record would have been maybe written on keys and there'd be low Ds here and there and maybe a low C every now and again, you know. But uh, so to try and get, emulate that, I think it would always be, mostly be missing if you didn't, if you, if you played the D up the octave. It's always nice to to uh, to get the low D in when it's there, you know. Give them the rumble. So, the people in the crowd feel it in their gut, like rumbling. Yeah, yeah. Like if uh, the, the but the basses on I was using with the chorus mostly uh, throughout the whole uh, um, period with the chorus were, were Lakeland basses, and they have an unbelievable uh, tight low B for those venues because when it got to playing big venues, um, that was a sort of a uh, a consideration that it should be taught and it should be a clear note because yeah. the, the, the size of the arenas that we eventually got to play, like it's just so loose. The bottom end can be so loose there anyway. So uh, I love the sound of the, the, the Lakeland 5594s. They had the Music Man pickup and the Jazz pickup. I just used the, both pickups on most of the time and a little bit of bass boost. And, and it's always sounded to me like it, it wasn't a recognizable sound of any bass but it had a good pop sound i think it just sat nicely in the mix where it was a chunky uh thick sound you know yeah i've heard um i saw uh, jason newstead um was watching this band and he he played a lot of lakelands when he was in metallica and he actually gave he went backstage after and he said to the bass player you're just not cutting through you need a lakeland so he gave him one of his lakelands so obviously oh, really? there's something about the tonality of them that does work for the big gigs like well, for that type of gig, it worked because, like, coming into the chorus as well, the first album was nearly all synth-based, apart from one track, I think, that Neil Stubbenhouse played on, which was the Toss the Fetish. And so it was it was that sort of thick sound that I felt, you know, the, the, the Lakeland could emulate it. Now, at the moment, I have a, a, a bass that I'm using, uh, an AV five-string, which I had a part in developing with Alex Vickerdale. He's a, a Czech builder. He contacted oh, cool. me in about yeah he contacted me in about 2011 uh, through Loudon Guitars because uh, he has some connection with Loudon and Antrim, first guitars. Is, is that what they That's are? right. Yeah. yeah, they're up. Yeah, and those guys were over in the Czech Republic uh, working with Firk Guitars on something, and and Alex had had worked with them. I was working with them, and they were out at a dinner one night, and he mentioned that he liked the course. And one of the guys from Loudon said, "Do you want to give uh, Keith a call?" Because he had he had my number from getting a, a, an eyeline I got off them, and, and obviously the the course had a good a few Loudons as well. So he said, "I'd like to get in contact with him and maybe make a bass." So, which was brilliant. You know? God, my so, phone does uh, never he, ring for free gear. This is good to know. <laughs> like <laughs> we can all, anyone listening, we can find out how we can make this work. 
Well, that was unusual. I mean, that was that was a very unusual thing. So uh, he contacted me and he said, "Look, I, I make these basses that are like uh, handmade instruments, and they were." Uh, he, he sent me a link to a site and I checked them out, and they were beautiful basses, but not my thing in a way. And I had been playing the precision, uh, uh, back to playing the precision for a good while um, around that time. So I asked him, "Would he make a five a five string precision that was pretty pretty close to a regular vintage?" You know. And he was smart because I'm uh, six foot five, six or four, six foot five. And he made the body slightly, uh, just a, a few millimeters wider that way. So when mm. you see the bass from, from a distance, the five string, the neck doesn't uh, dwarf the body when it hits it. A lot of, a lot of uh, things can look a little bit out of place when you see these really great basses, but the necks can look really uh, huge and, yeah. and, and it sort of shrinks the body. So the proportions are quite, uh, cool and also with the five machine heads in a row at a distance you know if, if you look at it quickly you'd think it was like the force thing and and i like that the headstock must be huge like to put the five it's, in a row well, uh, let me see i have one here it, it is yeah, quite it long uh, there you go look he prepared this one earlier nice there's one i prepared earlier so i mean it, yeah, it, it doesn't looks, look weird it at is all. quite long but i think probably because you can use the um the hip shot ultralights uh you know, it keeps it tighter. But this, they're just amazing bases. And, and this one sounds really, really good. So, nice. And the yeah. colour is kind of, what, what would you call that? Copper or gold? It's like a, I, I think it was supposed to be like a shoreline gold. No, no I think, mean, uh, what is it called? Fire mist gold. But it's it's more copper, like you say. It's not like the fire mist. You'll have to fire it's the tough. guy in the naming department. You're out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you're gone. Yeah. You're gone. I think it's hard to get the colours totally uh you know the same as we'd say a fender color because i might one of my favorite colors is shoreline gold but it's a much yeah. more tanny gold than that. i don't know you we'll have to give but a shout anyway. out to adam clayton uh for his signature bases because oh, they man. just look, they look amazing class. the I colors like. they, they look amazing the thing is as well uh, when you uh, uh, my mate uh paul turner based i don't know if you know paul turner he's is a that, fantastic he's, he's jamiroquai is it at the moment that's right yeah he's, yeah, he's with jamiroquai at the moment but paul um, I met Paul back in 93 in, in Birmingham when I was playing with the, with the, uh, the commitments over there. And I just was in the base uh, shop over there, the base center, whatever it was in Birmingham. And like every town that we'd hit, I'd actually go to the music shop there, you know, so I'd get off the bus <laughs> and try and find and make the nearest music shop. And in the music shop, they were at the desk and, and there were, it was three guys looking into the, uh, the control panel of uh, Paul's jazz bass. It was Paul and the guys in the shop. And they were saying there was something wrong with the uh, uh, electronics in it. He had, a, he had a preamp in there. So I kind of went over and had a little nose in and I said, oh, I've got a preamp that a guy made for me back in Dublin. And, and, and you know, he was really interested in that. And he said, uh, I said, we're, we're doing a sound check at, the, at four o'clock in the in the." Uh, the local theater whatever it was so he came down to the sound check really liked the, the preamp in my bass and uh, so eventually i got him but we became fast friends and sort of uh, mm. just kept in touch anytime he was over here uh in dublin i would see him anytime i was i was in in, in england i'd see him but that, that he's he's the guy who gave me uh, who uh, put ron keaton's gig my way because he got the gig with annie lennox so oh, i thought you would have just got it was the old irish connection not with the not thing no, I mean, most of the band, uh, uh, all bar one of Ronan's band, are, are uh, based in London. So it was actually, there was, a, there was, a, there was some sort of uh, thing where it may not have happened or something. So he kind of called me to be on, on standby and on a, on a backup. There was a, a, uh, an Asian tour happening with Ronan. And about a month before, he just said, look, or, uh, this might happen. And would you be interested in doing uh, Ronan's thing? And I said, of course. So... Uh, it ended up happening. He called me and, and we got the visas and stuff. And I, I just learned it off a desk tape and met the guys on the plane to Bahrain from London. You know, I flew to London and I was like, hi, you oh, know, nice. <laughs> how are you doing? And then it was straight into a sound check. As, like on, on those type of tours, you don't really get much of a chance the day before. And it's literally into the, the, the venue. And then they hadn't even done a rehearsal, so they were re-running the, the, the tunes, and I was just in sort of uh, straight in like that, and the gig went well, and that was it, and I've been doing it ever since. That was and you don't have a trouble with, you're in a few big bands with the scheduling of the tours, it, all, it always seems to line up kind of. No, they do clash sometimes. Okay. Um, I've been lucky, I've been lucky that 
uh, after that 2003 one with Rowan, um, the chorus got back to do uh, a pretty big tour in 2004, and I missed, it was an overlap of a few things that I missed. But luckily enough, I, I, I was back in. Ronan, Ronan is, was good like that. He's very loyal to the you know, players. So I came back in. And the same thing happened only recently uh, where the course came back. And um, I, I got a guy to do the first two weeks of Ronan's tour because the last two weeks of the course tour clashed with that. And they sent me the, uh, the, the rehearsal tapes. Most 70% of the tunes I knew anyway, but yeah. there was a new album to do. So there was like seven songs. So they sent me the rehearsal tapes and while I was out, I learned them and then went straight into a gig. So you like being on cool. the road anyway. <laughs> Sounds like I love you're being out a lot. <laughs> no, I love being on the road. I mean, like uh, when it's, you know, you can get, it, it's a funny thing. It's almost like as I get older now, there's a, there's a, a, a time frame for when it gets old. You know, if you're yeah. out more than, five or six weeks, it starts getting old. And then you need to get a bit of a break. I think three weeks is perfect now. A lot of people go out and they go for three weeks and they have a, a, a couple of weeks at home. Do you remember a, a pinch me moment? Like when, when I've seen your some of your pictures, you met Chuck Berry or with the Stones, loads of people. Oh, yeah. Uh, was there ever a, a point like at the start where you were just like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm, out, I'm on this yeah. tour. Like. <laughs> <laughs> There's loads of points like that. Like loads of things. It's funny. I think you try to, <clears throat> you almost have to try and take everything in your stride uh, because there were so many like huge things that it would almost freak you out. Like even doing things like David Letterman or Saturday Night Live, um, uh, Leno, the big, the big sort of TV shows in the States, you knew these were watched by just millions, you know, and then in Saturday Night Live being live, that was another thing, you know, it was anything, any clam was there yeah. and that was the end of it, you know. Like, but we seemed to get to a point where we were doing so many of them that we, we, we almost took them in our stride. We did a, we used to go to uh, New York most Paddy's Day, you know, m- most uh, uh, times around Paddy's Day. Yeah. And they, they'd actually put a load of things in. The record company would sort of cram as many God. things into, into <laughs> Paddy's Day. That was to stop could. you from going drinking. I know it did not stop that because I remember one of them we we uh we did um the good morning I think America which was uh you'd have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to do a sound check because they went on air say, at, at half six or seven oh or whatever God. it was so you'd be doing a sound check in uh, uh Rockefeller Plaza outside freezing cold obviously March you know the record company used to get us uh hand warmers and things to put in our pockets you know but I remember we did that, um, uh, and then we went straight on from there when that went off the air. We did about three songs on, on Good Morning, and then it went off the air at nine. But then we had to go straight to do a thing called The View, which was a, a sort of a woman's panel show. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, know the word, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we did that. Then we went to do right. something, uh, some VH1 thing uh, <laughs> in, in another. And then, would you believe, we had a gig uh, that night in Roseland Ballroom. And after all of that, we still went out. We got, we were <laughs> Heads were spinning. You're like, what, what's we happening were, next? Yeah, we were punchy. Yeah, and we still went out and just and just had some pints. You know, got, yeah. So, That's class. So yeah, long days. You know? Yeah, yeah. But there's been loads of. By the way, there's been loads of, like you said, so about the pinch me moments. It was amazing. Like even opening for the Stones, and uh, you know, spending a couple of weeks on the road with those guys. We got to party in Keith's room one night. They call it the cage, you know, <laughs> and it was like. This is unreal. Like you're sitting there, and, and, yeah. And the guys are uh, off, just off the stage, back to their suite, and we were sitting in a little uh, uh, on a couch and and the chair. Uh, myself, Anto, and Andrea were there, and um, it was like Ronnie and Keith, and uh, like they, they, Keith was walking around in his gig pants, you know, with no shirt on, and he was just like sort of. Like they were brilliant. They were so they were so friendly to us. It was great, you know. And it was just amazing to be amongst that, you know. I actually heard a really funny story about Keith Richards the last time I was on tour in England. Um oh, yeah. oh God, I can't remember the guy's name. We'll call him John anyway. He was back home in England and he heard that um he used to play with this keyboard player for forty years ago and he was they for years they played together. So he was back home in his giant mansion and he saw in the, the news that John whatever was playing up the road so he's like feck this and he got his personal driver rang him bring me to this gig 
and they rang the venue and he was like, Keith Richards is coming down. They were all freaking out. The guy who was on had the same name as his friend from 50 years ago, but wasn't oh, him. Yeah. So anyway, oh, no. Keith got the whole entourage, got them to clear out the backstage and they, they were, he came in anyway. And when he realized like the guy wasn't the guy from back in the day, he said nothing. He just was like, yeah, mate, I love your stuff. And he just stayed there all night <laughs> hanging out with him and jamming on the guitar. He was like, whatever, it's not the same guy from 50 years ago, but we'll, I'll roll with it. It's grand. I'll just go with it. And the just young fellow was it. just gobsmacked. He wasn't really very famous. He, he had sold a few yeah. hundred tickets for the gig, but he was like, Keith, what the, Keith Richards is coming into my dressing room. <laughs> Amazing. That's brilliant. <laughs> he was so cool, though, Keith. They used to watch the girls as well uh, from the side of the stage. I mean, it was so funny to turn around. We were out, and all we'd play is 25 minutes before the before them. And it was like, you know, the the, the, the Stones crowd. So we just we just go out and we do a thing. And you'd look into the uh, where the monitor desk is, and just beyond that, you'd see Ronnie and Keith maybe most nights, and then it was, you know, Mick would be there one night. And, and it's so surreal to see them standing watching the band, you know. Yeah. But they were great. Uh, Mick invited us to in Frankfurt, I think it was. We we ended up in his uh, uh, hotel just before before going out to a party, and he just invited everybody over. And it was so strange sitting on the – I was sitting on the edge of the couch because it was like uh, all the girls himself and the manager. And uh, he just come over. He goes, you did like a drink. And I'm going, <laughs> yeah, and I have a Heineken. He goes to Definitely this, surreal. Yeah. It's kind of weird. And it was kind of funny because I think the girls didn't know what to say in in a way, but Anto uh, knew about Keith's brother, I think it was, uh, and he he was talking to him about him and talking about blues, talking about some of the older blues uh, uh, artists that uh, that, um, Mick was into, you know. So very nice. I mean, you know, it was, but surreal. Like, they're the moments where you go, this is kind of weird, you know. Yeah, that's nice. That's amazing. Those kind of stuff when you're tour, you you just can't compare. There's nothing compares to those kind of things when they happen. Like when you're on tour, it's brilliant. No, and and you just you really have to soak them in at the time because there's so many times that have happened, and you know you kind of don't maybe enjoy it as much as you you should do at the time. You you know they just they fly past you, you know. But you t- you you take it in your stride because you're just in that moment. Yeah, that's the bet. I think that suits Irish people a lot. They just roll with it, like, we'll see what happens here. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's been loads. I mean, it's hard to even think of the chronology of some of the things because it, 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 me looking back now at it, a lot of the things get mushed into a certain yeah. time frame. And I go, what year was that? Well, you know, and Anto is much better memory than I have of, of, of all the events, you know. Definitely. So he'd say, no, no, it was then, it was this, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm reading okay. a, a book at the moment, uh, Jerry McAvoy riding shotgun, and I'm kind oh, of amazed yeah. by the detail, the stuff he remembers, like to the, the tiniest minutia. I'm like, I'll never remember that kind of stuff. No, there's no way. Well, I, I have a terrible memory as it is, but even if you're like, if you're uh, traveling a lot and you end up tr- crossing time zones as well, I think what we, what my uh, sort of way of dealing with it and it's the strangest way of dealing with anything is it seems to be when you get somewhere and you're supposed to be awake you go right i have to have a few pints because i'm supposed to be awake and i have a tequila and this will keep me going through right and then if you get to another part of the world and you're supposed to be asleep you go i have a few pints it'll put me to sleep right so it was kind of yeah it's kind of like drink was the answer to i don't drink anymore anybody you know but It would at that time it was like okay <clears throat> you'd arrive in Japan, Tokyo or something. It's a weird time uh, lapse. You, you, you start feeling really strange there with jet lag. So you would just sort of go okay, I've got to push through this, and you have a few pints in the bar or whatever, you know, <laughs> or go out or go out and just uh, explore explore places. Uh, you know? And yeah. you've done some studio projects, which is kind of the antithesis of what you're doing with the cars and um, Ronan. Well, it was, yeah. is it David Little? You did a kind of, kind of hip-hop oh, yeah, kind of project. Yeah, that was real. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was great. I, I was working with um, Michael Buckley at the time in his studio in Dublin. And I uh, I was playing on some stuff for him. And he, about a week previous to that, he had had David Little in recording. And he said, oh, i got to give you a listen to this track. Uh, it had Jason Rebello playing piano on it, who's ridiculous. So, uh after I finished my session, we were sitting in the studio in front of the desk, plugged in and everything, and he played me a track. I said, oh, geez, that sounds really class. It sounds great. You know, I love it. 
And uh, he said, we were plugged in. He said, do you want to just have a, do a, a pass on it, have a go? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? So it was, it was like a four-chord, a looped thing uh, where the you know, piano solo was. So I just played it, had the precision on and with flats on it, and it sounded pretty cool in the track. So I just did, and I left it with Michael. I think I did about two or three passes on it. And it was long, so you could have edited it any way you wanted to, you know. And uh, a week later, he said, David heard and he loves it, and he wants you to play on some other tracks. So I came in and I played on another track with him. Uh, Pino had played on a track for David as well, which was a great God. thing that's, to be on an that's album. That's scary, isn't so. it? <laughs> be not, be not. It was scary. Yeah, it was, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. So, but it was brilliant. Like he, the direction was kind of that laid back behind the beat type of thing with the dull. And it was, I just, I really enjoyed it. It gave me a lot of scope to play around a little, you know, with it. And I think that's the thing. It's, 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 it's trying to play for the gig or, or the song, whatever it is. Sometimes people think, uh, you know, I actually think it's cool just to play, uh, you know, whole notes or whatever it is yeah. in the right place and the nice pocket. Um, so I, I've never, I've never really felt that of, of pushing things on unless I think it, it, it warrants it, you know? Yeah. And I think we were talking uh, before we came on about the, the, the harmony bass that you have. It's like a hollow body. And that's kind oh, yeah. of something you'd pick up for those long notes and make you play c- completely different to your usual style. Oh, that, yeah. I think anything. And I think that's why having a few different bases, I mean, I, I know it can, it can be a, an ism or a problem at some point, looking at Definitely. bases all the time and wanting to have different bases. I mean, I'd mostly, it, it's weird. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was said to that a drummer that he knows had, was working with Pino. And he said, oh, I want to get a bass from my own studio, you know. And he said, uh, what would you recommend? And he said, just get any precision, any make yeah. of precision and put a set of flats on it. And, yeah, and it right. would be grand. <laughs> and he's kind of right. Like, you know, if I've got an old 65 precision, which is brilliant. And it really sounds great and it feels great. But having said that, I've actually played the, the you know, the Chinese... Uh, squire basses or whatever with a set of flats on and they just sound they sound great you know yeah. you can you can you can get a sound out of uh out of most things nowadays i think that would be that would warrant it but to get back to the harmony i don't play upright uh, uh i have an upright here that's kind of dusty mine's even in the bag it's gone that bad i don't play it <laughs> that's it there's no dusty end. It's just the dusty. <laughs> I walk past it and I don't want to, to glimpse it sometimes because I feel guilty about not playing. It. But uh, when I'm doing anything that's kind of singer songwriter or things like that, that, that uh, they want that type of tone for, I have the harmony or a K bass. Uh, it's, a, it's called a Jimmy Reed or they call it a Howlin' Wolf bass. And that's yeah, an old yeah. 59. Now, that, that's brilliant as well because you can put a bit of sponge in there that you can kill the notes when you want or the magic sponge always helps the magic uh, the sponge is brilliant it's just i uh, you know i love the sponge you always go to the sponge because i love i love playing with the 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 thumb and the dampen technique with the palm a lot of the time when you have the sponge in and you can move further up the neck to get around a tone or whatever it is you know it's just and the notes decay really nice little or aldi sponge like which one is better for the tone Uh, uh, you know what? I, it's it's whatever the soundproofing in Ritz rehearsal studio <laughs> sponge is. I, I use that one day, and that, that that seems to work for me. You know, I like I like sponges that's not doesn't kill it too much because then you can actually you can do it with your hand as well or yeah. with your palm as well. So there's there's two ways about going. going and I like that brand, uh, Tomastic Flatwounds. I don't know what oh, yeah. you, I, that's what Pino uses. So I said sure. That's what he for him. I well, brilliant, and there's a sound that he he gets is particular to him. I think, and it's a lot of it is to do with the string as well. I did try the Tomastics because obviously I wanted to try it to see what the fuss was about, and they're great strings. I did find that they rolled a little bit for me. They seemed a bit more malleable than I like. Uh, so when I was pressing down on a note, they seemed to to roll, uh, you know, that way. No, okay. so it made it, and they were a little bit. Uh, I don't know. It just felt a little bit. Uh, springy for me I, I use dr strings all the time and i love i just love them they, they make a, a flat wound called legend and really yeah for that's, me yeah for me they're brilliant because that's not as popular they, brand for the flat wounds a lot of people get those no. colored drs that's kind of when they're buying the drs uh, yeah. Like. yeah well i got drs uh 
I, I used to use whatever I could get back back uh, in the day, where it was Rotor Sound or it was um, GHS came into Dublin then in the, in the late 80s or something, whatever it was, in McCullough Pickets, I used to get them. But I did a tour and uh, in, the, in early, probably 93 it was, and the tech had come from, I think, a Paul Simon tour. He was working on that and he had his, his little case with you know tour stuff in it like pliers and whatever you have in those boxes but he had a set of drs in there he said if you want to try these so i put them on and immediately they were the tight fit uh 45 to 105 and i just loved them and i've used them ever since then i've, I've you know i've been uh, with dr ever since then they're a great company yeah i think you're the more the longer you play and the more gear you get gets thrown at you probably for, for free you get a bit of that you kind of get less interest in the gear, don't you? Like you, you just you kind of stick with what you like, and the other stuff can just go over your head. It's, I've, you don't care anymore. Absolutely, I, I think, and it is that irony that where when you're busy and you're making a good living at it, you you then end up getting offered free things, and, yeah. and you know, and th- there is a temptation to take them a lot of the time because they're free, and you go right. I remember when I only had one base in a cardboard box. And I didn't even have a, you know, I got a carpenter friend to make a case. So you you remember back to those days when you hadn't got a yeah. bean. But there's no point. I realized early on that there's no point in taking something if you don't really like it or you're going to not going to use it because it's no good to the people that give it to you. And it's actually no good to you either because you exactly. end up with this thing that you, it's like the thing I have now, you know. I so, totally agree. Yeah, just too, too yeah. much stuff. No one needs it. Like, I'd rather buy something that I love and get something that I just, whatever, you know, you just have to use because, it, you know, that's, uh, that's what you have to do. Like, luckily enough, anything that I've had an endorsement with, the, I've had a good relationship with the companies like EBS Amplification. They're the best company like uh, that I've ever worked with really, or dealt yeah. with because really they're amazing and they treat their artists uh, brilliantly. You know they they look after them anytime you've got any issue. Not that I've had any issues with PBS because it's always been very solid and and through the gear. But the, the issues would be doing a tour or doing something where it's in England and you have to do another thing in another country and they would get you a, a rig no problem and have it all worked out. Brilliant. you know so that sort of thing uh is worth its weight in gold it's brilliant and you know? how did the lack the lakeland sorry to pronounce it properly the lakeland connection come about because that's a real respected base brand like to get endorsed by uh, let me see i was friends with a guy called bob williams who works for demeter amps in uh in california and uh bob met Dan at the NAM show in probably must have been 96 or 7, maybe 97. And he told them about me that with the cores, the, the cores were kind of doing good tours in the States at that time. And Bob, and Dan wanted to get the brand out there because he was looking for indoor seas. So he gave me a call and he said he could do a good deal. You know, it wasn't free. I didn't get free, but he said he could do a good artist yeah. price on him. And I'd seen uh, a few people using them and I thought, wow, I'd really love this. So we were, to, we were due to start a tour in America with the cores uh, from New York. I won, it was probably a, a few, about three or four months later. And he said, I'll ship them to Rudy's in New York. So there was two bases. There was the four-string version and the five-string version of the, with the music man and the jazz pickup. And I went in there and collected them and then went on tour with them. And it was just like, wow, yeah, these are great. <laughs> so when we went to Chicago, I ended up meeting up with Dan and we became friends. And, and I, every time we went back to Chicago, He'd come to collect me either from the hotel with the basses and he'd bring them, bring me to the factory with the basses and he'd give it to the guys to give them a good going over uh, to see if everything was okay with them. So they'd get a little, you know, a little TLC after being on the road. And he did say to me, he said, look, if you see a bass here that you like better than one of the ones you have, he said, I'll swap it out for you if you want to do that. That's so cool. And I thought, that's amazing because he knows if you love the thing, you will actually use them all the time. And he ended up using. I still, I still use my uh, my Bob Blob model. Yeah, it's no good to him get, giving you the base, and then it's just in a case, and it never no. is on the stage for people to see. Absolutely, yeah, no, no that that's his whole whole ethos, I suppose, is making a really good product that people uh, you know kind of use. And now he's doing his own thing again with D Lake and basis. So he's he's out there, uh, you know making the same same type of thing 
Yeah. But he's 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 they're doing it in a, uh, like a handmade American version now, where he had had done a cheaper line. I think he's going in a heavier, you know. Are, are we going to get hitting. to see the Keith Duffy signature later? You some never stage? know. I mean, like, it's, you know, it's not maybe not signature, but maybe inspired by you know, because he he was always very good. That if I wanted something slightly changed on it, he he was he was good like that, you know. So yeah, we still talk every now and again, and uh, through Dan. I met Bob Glob as well, who's become my best mate now. We talk nearly every day via text really? or we yeah, or or FaceTime. And uh like we met at the NAM show in two thousand and six, um, when when I was at the Lakeland stand and, and we just uh became great friends and he's he's such a guy now that would be a mentor to me in 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 a way like with just his approach and his musicality and stuff, you know. So I learned a lot off him. There's a couple of guys that I would say have been a big influence on yeah, me playing. A mentor, mentor like to you. A like. mentor, yeah. And, and early, like uh, early on in, back at home, Tony Malloy uh, is, is, has probably been the most supportive guy to me and helpful. An amazing player. I mean, yeah, he's... In the trad like, kind of, plays a lot in the trad style. He uh, used to, yeah. Well, he do, yeah. Any style. I mean, he's yeah. just a, a fabulous musician and just a, like, uh, you know, He's he can play anything. He's a great great guitar player. Um, you know, he, he's just a musician, very well rounded musician. And I learned a hell of a lot. I bought my second bass off Tony when I was uh, eighteen, I think it was. I had that precision that I got, which turned out to be a dog. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> <Not really laughs> it wasn't the best one to learn on. The yeah. neck kept on going on it. It was something. There was a twist in the neck. Should have so got I the square. Get, <laughs> I should have got the square. But uh, and it was heavy. It was like ten and a half pounds or something. So one of those real late seventies dogs, you know. So I I saw um, uh, Tony had a, a music man for sale, uh, a black one, and I went out to his house and tried it and loved it and bought it off him. And we just uh, we we remained friends throughout that. But he was definitely a big help with with uh, where I the direction I choose I chose to go playing and stuff. You know, when I started playing. In the 80s, there was, there was five gigs a week probably to do. You could be playing five gigs a week, traveling up and down the country now, eating, eating packets of potato and cans of Coke, <laughs> which probably wasn't the best young, thing young, for you. Young, but that's a young man's game. <laughs> very <laughs> young man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it was brilliant. The fact that you you had those uh, those times to kind of learn what you do. Even uh, we, uh, we did a, a couple of seasons in Spain. I played in Ibiza for six months. And that was seven nights a week from half 10 to half two in the morning. And kind of a Beatles kind of thing. It was kind of that thing, like in Hamburg. Yeah. And you definitely, there was something about, even though you were playing most of the same time, you're playing the same songs every night and you were playing. But there's a thing about having hands on an instrument for that amount of time that it just, there's there's something about that, that that leads you to get different tones out of it or or work, you work it around. So that thing, what they say about 10,000 hours, I do believe in that, that you do have to have a lot of hours behind to to then open doors, tonality or whatever, you know? You can't fake it. You have to just do it, do the hours. You have to to do the work, yeah. And I don't know, I mean, maybe with the, with the, the new generations, like we say, that have YouTube and everything at their disposal, like when, when I was starting, it was lifting the needle off the record and doing that, or yeah. record it, and then just pause, you know, play with the cassette, wrecking things, like, you know, just trying to, trying to listen to, to, to <laughs> the, the you know, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't camping bass, you know, uh, you know, Donna Lee bass cover or Keen Town bass cover yeah. and some, somebody showing you, you just go, oh, yeah, it's that, you know. <laughs> That'd be great. It was, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. It was painstaking at the time, you know, so. Yeah, and sometimes you yeah. didn't even know what, the, you just couldn't figure out what they were doing or, I remember no. some, some of my buddies were watching the Teen Spirit oh. video and Kurt Cobain is at one part on the ground and he's messing with the guitar. And the lads mm. were trying to copy what he was doing in the vi- music video <laughs> to play the song. <laughs> I was like thinking, I don't think that's how it goes. <laughs> oh, it's mad. That it's, it's, it's funny for me. I always remember I'd, I'd, I'd learned something. If it was a very involved thing, like even a lot of the Jacko stuff, especially off the first album, I was trying to get into learning Teen Town or learning the solo in Havana or learning, uh, you know, Birdland, even with the pinched harmonics and things like that. And I always felt that, I'd invest a couple of hours in it, but then move away from it and come back. And sometimes you'd come back and you'd hear something that was a semitone out or something. And you go, oh, no, it's not that note. It's, you know, because it was so fast. Yeah. So it was a process like that for me where I had to put a lot of time into it, you know. 
<laughs> and I, I kind of liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it is. You need time, though. It's it's kind of when it's great when you start playing as a teenager because you have the time. You know, you have those hours to to do it. Oh, come on, well, look, nineteen eighty three, right? I mean, there was nothing else going on. <laughs> it was like there was I was not on, on the, the telly, and there was no internet. There was nothing. There was nothing on the telly, no internet, no Snapchat or Facebook or whatever, you know, or, or Instagram there, you know. So, like, that's the thing. I suppose things are evolving all the time now. And even now, when you look at things like Instagram, you've got guys that are, like, doing uh, these short hits of 59 or 49 seconds or whatever it is. And they've got, like, 60,000, 80,000 followers. Yeah. And that's a new thing now. That, that, that's what uh, manufacturers go after when they're looking to endorse somebody. They go, how many Instagram followers have you got? You know, and, and can you sell sell our gear for us? You know, you know, it's just a different world. Like when it comes, but I wouldn't worry about the endorsements anyway. You don't need them because the equipment is no. so cheap these days. It doesn't matter. Like. But that, absolutely, listen, you can go and do, uh, you can go and get a squire, uh, sorry, a, a sire base. If you know, the, the sire are doing so many different models now, even if it's not the Marcus Miller sound you're going after, but you can go, you can get these sire bases for 400 and whatever you know quid there and really cheap amps or, or a lot of people don't even use amps now when they're on in-ears you know so yeah. it's not about that but there is the side of it where I, I like coming up of a certain generation i was transfixed on certain instruments when i saw them when i saw jacko playing his jazz all beat up when i saw Jam- yeah. you know eventually saw jameson's pre-bass with the tortoise shell guard and so it meant something to me and, and i think my generation and maybe older, we all, we all have that. Maybe even collectors of guitars are into that sort of thing. And they're, might, they're of a certain age. I think nowadays, to, the value of all of that has even gone. There's no iconic look of, oh, I want that Strat. Or, you know, yeah. I think maybe kids, kids are getting away from that now. So they'll get any, anything and, just, and, and, and be able to play music on anything now. You yeah, know? but the players don't really have brand loyalty. Like, not that that's no. a bad thing. Because like, I saw Joe no. Dart. He he was known. Yeah. It was the joke was Joe Dart on the Fender bass, and then his first <laughs> ever signature bass is this Music Man. So it's a Music Man, yeah. So there you go. But that's right. I know that that's yeah. But uh, I, I suppose that's the thing about it. It's uh, it's one of those where people can use any instrument now and get a great sound out of it. And, and I don't know if they're as recognizable. Uh, like I suppose maybe Joe got a, a, a you know he's got a good cut out of doing the music man thing so he moved, moved that way and he's going to sound great on any base you know I so i think it just comes down to for a lot of those guys the people in the company they like dealing yeah. with them like because yeah. i know i'm um, brent hines out of mastodon tells it as it is and he has a gibson signature in the works and he just put up a big rant online saying forget about them and he got the epiphone signature and he's happy out with it so wow. just, it was the people in the company he was having a problem with so he just went to a different one so yeah it's like you said you love work with ebs the guys there are great yeah absolutely but you know we every year they have uh at the nam show they have an artist's dinner and they just to show their appreciation for you using their equipment and they'll have like they'll give out little gifts and things like that you know i've met so many great players alex al you know tal wilkenfeld all all these people at these dinners and it's brilliant because it's just all bass players and it's a funny thing when all bass players get together we just start having the crack and this you know that we it's you you immediately get past any any preamble of getting to know somebody by just the fact that you're you're you know you're a bass player you just go straight in with some you know and it's like you're connected oh, by yeah. the bass <laughs> you're connected you're connected by the lowest form of expression as they say yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> what what are you doing at the moment to keep the chops going considering you're used to being on tour all the time are you finding the chops are you doing any remote recording or anything like I that? I am, yeah. I have a setup that I record at home and I've done a few things here, a few albums and a few recordings for people. And uh, I'm, I'm really getting into that, actually. I'm liking it. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun having the time uh, to do, to, I don't know, when you, there's no constraints around it. Like some of the sessions, uh, like uh, last year I was very busy with, a, uh, with doing a couple of sessions in, in a studio here in Dublin. And it's pretty fast moving. It's, you know, you arrive in in the morning and uh, they're working out something, they do out a, a chart and then you've got to get the beds down. So three tracks a day, probably, or whatever it is. On to, and it can be fast moving. You have to try and come up with something yeah. real fast. And, but at home, you've got, the, you've got the time to digest the song, have a cup of tea, listen to the lyrics. And this is another thing I've heard even about Pino, that he doesn't move 
really fast in in the in the session world like you would imagine the guys yeah. like will lee or are put there's a chart put in front of them and it's almost like right now nail that and beat it because we've got other stuff going <laughs> on but when you but when you get somebody like pino in he brings so much to it that he's afforded the time to yeah. do that you know that so i've heard that Exactly. And, and come on, he delivers all the time. So sure you know, he's always delivered. So you go, right, we're just going to wait till Pino wants to do this, you know? Exactly. And, and so he listens to the track, I think has a cup of tea probably and works out a few ideas and then does it. So when you're at home, you've got more of a chance of just sitting back and trying to immerse yourself in the track rather than getting an immediately good take uh, and maybe playing it a little bit safer than you would normally. You know? Brilliant. Uh, well, it's been class chatting to you. I think we covered a lot there now, and I think if people listen, basically they they learn. You know, just take any opportunity that comes to you, and I suppose just follow your gut. That's what you did with the cars. You just and any pro any project that you start, you got going with. You you just went with your gut, and if the project felt like it was going to be a good thing, you just went with it. Really, wasn't it? Like, and for anyone that's looking to get involved and stuff, someone messaged me on Instagram yesterday and said, "How will I get started?" what will I do? And I just said, just keep an eye on the, the pages looking for depth musicians and bring 200% to anything you do. Like This is the biggest thing I I think uh, that I, if, if there's anything that I would, you know, as in a bit of advice, if I could even have a bit of advice is like you said there, bring 200%, no matter what the gig is and no matter what your, you know, some people see certain gigs at a, at a at a different level than others, whether it's a pub gig or whether it's a wedding, whether it's a, it's never a meh, it's this gig. Every gig you do, you have to do 100%. You have to do the best job. And even doing depth gigs, if you're given the wherewithal on a gig to actually do a good job, like that means if somebody's getting you to depth and they say, look, here's a set, I'm going to do that. Learn the ass off that set and then nail it so nobody knows that there's another guy standing into the band. Sometimes yeah. you're not given the wherewithal because some people will just pull songs out and it's like, you know, they'll just pull a song from somewhere that they've done before and they don't know that you don't know it or whatever. And you just have to clam your way through it or get your way through it. But the best thing to do is always give 100%. And, and I think that will be noticed and also you never know who you're going to be playing with. No. You, you could be playing with somebody who plays with some other set of that you'd be perfect for him. So they go, I was gigging with this guy the other night. He really, you know, uh, he really had his moves together and he, he really loves the music or whatever. And just not, don't be an asshole as well. I think yeah. if, if you if you can get on with people, because no matter how good you are, by the way, I, I you know, 50% uh, of all of that is how you interact with other musicians and how you get on with people. Because if you're in a studio and you're, you're sucking up the air by the either you know relentless talking or you're just being a bit a bit uh, you know uh angular or whatever it is it's it's gonna you know people in that it's a it's a stressful environment enough as it is so people want to, people that they can just go i can count on him he's not going to be yappy he's not going to do that and same on the tour if you're on a tour yeah. bus you don't want to be the one that's swigging the, the bottle of jack daniels no. and then puking on your on person you're working for <laughs> and also the margins are getting so thin these days in the music world you're spending more time together you're like it's not as if you have a hotel room each something if you're on a huge tour you no. would be but tour bus are getting smaller everything is the margins are getting tighter so you really have all, to get along with time. people you do have to get along with people and, and like all the time the things are because i suppose with the on with, with the spotify these are all these uh platforms that people the, the the valuation of the music is already there so uh people are going out we're going out on tour to make the most out of it and i suppose the amount of money that used to be cut up in in the pie in certain ways to go to production musicians things are getting tighter now you know lots of people are being asked to do a tour and they might say well look it's not as good as it was the last time and you either do it or you don't do it somebody else will do it you know but you have to have a good positive attitude and if you like working with the people that you're working with i've been lucky i've been long-term mm. in a lot of bands like you know I, I seem to have lasted in the bands and got on well with people and uh that i i find myself lucky like that you know yeah well best to look with uh well we hope when the gigs get back and you're back on tour yeah but i hope uh, it'd be 
we'll I'll get people to check you out on Instagram and hopefully some of the remote recordings you're doing at the moment will pop up eventually. And sure, yeah. They can check I, your I'm other side out. I'm not great on that stuff. I have to say, I'm not brilliant on Facebook or Instagram, but I'll put up, now it seems to be only memories that you're putting up. <laughs> remember like, when, remember live music. Remember, yeah, it's like a, me- a memory of you standing somewhere <laughs> with a light on you, you know, but that seems to be it. It's either that or pictures of my dog. So, you yeah, know. Nothing wrong with dog uh, pictures. I love putting No, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. No, but, uh, yeah, when when I'm not great with those uh, uh, um, platforms, but I do post on Instagram if there's anything interesting going on. You know, I'll put something up. Like, cool. You know, yeah, well, keep putting it up. Again. Never know if you're doing a remote session, you could just put up that you're what you're Absolutely. doing, a few little licks or whatever, yeah. whatever you that's feel it, comfortable with. <laughs> that, that, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Well, definitely. Well, thanks for asking me to, to do it, there, Stephen. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Keith for coming on. If you want to follow what he does, just go to Instagram at Keith Duffy Bass and I'm at Stephen McGrath Bass on YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. Um, I really appreciate it. If you just sent me a message, tell me what you think of the podcast, who I should have on next. And of course, like, subscribe and buy some merch at bassCraft.bigcartel.com. <laughs>